Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an analysis of today's hearings of the House Select Committee investigating the January 16th election and speak with Dr. Michael MacDonald, a professor of political science at the University of Florida. He is the principal investigator of the Public Mapping Project, a project to encourage public participation in redistricting, and is also the director of the United States Election Project. His new book, Out Soon, is From Pandemic to Insurrection, Voting in the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election, and he joins us to discuss how, although Republicans in the House refused to participate in the Joint Committee, Almost all of the witnesses testifying are Republicans, and today's testimony from the Republican Speaker of the Arizona Legislature, who stood up to Trump's Stop the Steal lies, was particularly effective. Then we'll examine today's 6-3 Supreme Court decision to fund religious schools with taxpayer money, which weakens the separation of church and state, chipping away at what Thomas Jefferson described as the wall of separation. Joining us is Diane Ravitch, a professor in New York University Steinhardt School of Education and one of America's best-known education experts. She was appointed to the National Assessment Governing Board by President Bill Clinton and served as Assistant Secretary of Education under George H.W. Bush. Her most recent book is Reign of Error, The Hoax of the Privatization Movement and the Danger to America's Public Schools. Then finally, we'll go to Colombia to examine the results of Sunday's election that brought a former guerrilla, Gustavo Petro, to the presidency, along with the vice president, Francia Marquez, an Afro-Colombian environmentalist who was once a domestic servant who cleaned houses. Joining us is Forrest Hilton, a professor of political science at the Universidad Nacional de Colombia and the author of Evil Hour in Colombia. He is a frequent contributor to the London Review of Books, where he just wrote the article Fiesta Democratica. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Dr. Michael McDonald, a professor of political science at the University of Florida. He's the principal investigator on the Public Mapping Project, a project to encourage public participation in redistricting. He's also the director of the United States Election Project. And his new book, Out Soon, is From Pandemic to Insurrection, Voting in the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Michael McDonald. Oh, great to be with you again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Michael. And the hearing today before the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection really did get at the heart of of a couple of the states that were involved in um, this election haggling that Trump and his supporters were engaged in, Georgia and Arizona. And what's particularly striking is that so far with these hearings, almost all of the witnesses have been Republicans. And 
Frankly, the Speaker of the Arizona Legislature, Rusty Bowers today, was very, very powerful, I thought. So I find that a little bit ironic, that given that the Republicans in the House boycotted the committee, nevertheless, it's pretty heavily stacked with Republican witnesses. Yeah, it's, it's important to remember that Republican elected officials, uh, Republican appointed judges, uh, law enforcement, they all looked at the allegations that Trump made about fraud in the 2020 election. The courts looked at it very closely. There were 60 court cases, and there was no evidence, no compelling evidence. And so instead, and this was today in the hearings, is that um, Trump had to fall back onto a cockamamie scheme of having fake electors and um, having complicit members of Congress go along with this idea to violate the Constitution and install these fake electors uh, to anoint him to be president of the United States. Um, you know, fortunately, of course, all of that failed, but uh, we certainly came very close to it. And it is troubling that we continue to see members of Congress who many who supported the idea that there's um, these alternative electors or fake electors should be um, uh, chosen over the legitimate ones that were um, elected by the people. Um, they continue to obstruct uh, the proceedings uh, in various ways, to, even to this day. And they continue to um, spout out conspiracy theories about the election, again, with zero proof. And um, you know, it, it's great that there are um, Republicans at the state level who believe in democracy and follow the Constitution. Um, but it's troubling that we have a cadre of people at the national level who, um, who are Republicans who won't make that same step in, you know, in support of just the basic democratic principles of this country. But the questioner today was from the panel was a congressman, Adam Schiff, former U.S. attorney, and he recently said that um, he feels that we're in a much more dangerous position now vis-a-vis -vis the state of American democracy than we were on January the 6th. He's actually more alarmed at what has happened since January the 6th in terms of Republican efforts to control, take over Secretary of State's offices and canvassing boards, etc., and lay the groundwork for, you know, you, we saw the brazen attempt at cheating in uh, both Georgia and Arizona. And in fact, the Speaker of the Legislature, Bowers, in Arizona said today that he didn't want to win by cheating. But Donald Trump doesn't care. <laughs> he just wants to win, right? He cannot accept a loss. It's something psychological to do with his, the brutal upbringing of his father is that you can't be a loser. So do you think that eventually will get across that all of this talk is just completely manufactured because at the end of the day, this is a man who will say or do anything to stay in power because he can't face the idea of defeat? Well, um, it's true that the threat is still there and it's arguably larger than it was um, in the midst of the insurrection that happened on uh, January 6th. And I say that because 
some of those Republicans who did stand up for the rule of law and for democracy and following the will of the people, um, they've been removed from their positions. So, for example, in Michigan, the canvassers, the board of canvassers, the Republican members there that um, supported the the certification of the election in in Michigan, uh, they've been removed by the Republican Party and they've been replaced with people who are election deniers. Uh, We've seen local election officials across the country who have been forced out of their positions because of the threats and the continued harassment that they get. Um, and they just simply, you know, reasonably uh, from, from them, they can't take it. It's too nerve wracking for them. So we've seen people quit. We've seen others like in Colorado, uh, where a local election official um, gave access to uh, voting technology in violation of the state law and um, has been removed from her office. Uh, We've seen just recently, this last week, uh, a canvassing board in New Mexico saying that they would not certify the election uh, because of um, they were concerned about the voting machines. And baselessly, there was no allegation. There was no allegation there was anything wrong. It's just that they don't they didn't feel good about it. And the New York, the New Mexico uh, Supreme Court had to step in and order them to certify the election. So these people who are leaving, they're being replaced with by these um, true believers about uh, the election. Uh, in some places, they are being nominated to be secretaries of state uh, as Republican candidates. And if they win, we could see that um, uh, elections will be slanted very heavily. And in we may see uh, them failing to do their duties, their legal, lawful duties to certify an election result where a Democrat wins. They won't want, they won't do it. Um, And, you know, we, you know, fortunately there've been some of these candidates who are running for uh, secretary of state or other election uh, offices who have been defeated in Republican primaries, but some of them moving forward. And our con- the concern is when we get to the general election, if inflation is what everyone is concerned about when we get into November, then um, this greater issue about the very survival of our democracy may get shoved aside. And you know, some of the inflation, although not all of it, can be traced back to Putin. Um, and so, his attack on Ukraine may, you know, unintended or intended by creating uh, and adding, piling on to the inflation woes of the world may yield a result where um, we see the toppling of democratic governments across the, the globe. Um, so again, that's, it'd be, it sounds like I'm being very alarmist, which I'm trying to be, um, but you know, and this is like some sort of far-fetched scenario, but we would never have thought um, going into the November election that on January 6th, there would be an attempted insurrection with an actual penetration onto the Capitol grounds um, by an angry mob. Um, and so the reality is, is that these, what I hope will never come to pass, these far-fetched scenarios 
um, but they're tangible um, and they we could see these outcomes happen here. And so, you know, I, I understand that, that people make choices about candidates and they evaluate um, candidates, but I hope that, you know, on, on things like inflation, the economy and other things you know, that are important to them in terms of policies. But I hope that we can all agree that um, we live in a democracy. Uh, we've done it for over 200 years and um, it's important to continue that democracy. And so uh, without it, then we lose a lot as a country. And, you know, it may be that, yay, I, 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 my side wins and we can really trash the other side, um, you know, if that's what you're thinking. But eventually they come for you, too. I mean, the, the, we've already seen this where um, Republicans in primaries who are voting for candidates other than um, the one that Trump supports, Trump claims that they are, um, their votes are illegal and fraudulent. So, um you know, eventually, the, you know, the finger gets pointed back at not just the other side that you might despise for some reason, but it may get pointed back at you as well. And again, we're already seeing that happen, say, in Georgia um, and other in Pennsylvania. So um, and, and that, you know, just within the last couple of months. So I hope that people will consider that democracy is important and it's important to preserve and that their votes will take into account the possibility that if they elect one of these election deniers um, on the Republican side, that it's going to do a lot of harm. It won't just um, be about a one-off about inflation. That's it's not going to solve inflation one way or another. But we could have some serious losses of our liberties and over the long term if we elect some of these um, election deniers. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Michael McDonald, who's a professor of political science at the University of Florida. He's a principal investigator on the Public Mapping Project, a project to encourage public participation in redistricting. And he's also the director of the United States Election Project. And his new book out soon is From Pandemic to Insurrection, Voting in the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election. And Michael McDonald, you brought up Vladimir Putin. Of course, his strategy has always been to divide America, to weaken our democracy, to, which is what he's done in Russia. He more or less said, look, you know, democracy doesn't really work and just go along with the, the fact that I'm, I'm the boss and I'm in charge. And it's already working here. I mean, in, arguably Trump is the gift that keeps on giving because he's divided the country, exacerbated the divisions, and basically spread this idea that you can't trust election results. And as you you just brought up what's happening in New Mexico with this canvassing board in one precinct not wanting to certify the the 2020 elections. Well, that will happen in November all over the place, will it not? And Putin is just, and so Xi Jinping, is, they're all going to be laughing. Say, see, I told you so. Democracy doesn't work. Well, we know that Putin and Trump were close or are close. Um, we don't know the depth of, of that relationship and how far it goes back and, and everything else. But we do know that P Putin has um, intentionally tried to subvert our democracy by uh, pitting us against each other. Uh, we know that the uh, Russians have supported and funneled money into the National Rifle Association. Um, it's not because they support having 
uh, you know, Americans having guns that might attack Russia. Now, that's not the issue. They What they want to do is they want to um, foment um, dissension within the United States and supporting a group that um, causes that sort of tension. Uh, and we know that the Russians were engaged uh, in social media disinformation campaigns against the United States and United States voters. Um, and they do it on both sides, by the way. I mean, what they... What they do is their goal end goal is to create conflict. They want us to eat ourselves. And so um, they'll support right wingers and left wingers. Um, They'll hide or attempt to hide, you know, the the source of it. But their goal isn't necessarily about Trump winning. What they want is divisions. They want us inactive, paralyzed so that we're attacking each other rather than uh, facing um, Russia as a common front among not only the United States, but also among our allies. So, you know, again, part of Putin's strategy with respect to Trump was that he hoped, I believe, he hoped that um, Trump would pull us out of NATO and destroy NATO. uh, And that would leave him an easy pathway into a place like Ukraine, Poland, and other places. So, um, you know, I, Yes, absolutely. Uh, This is part of a grand strategy that uh, these autocratic nations have against the United States. And but look at it this way. They're having to do it because we are so successful. We destroyed the USSR. It's gone. Putin's trying to scrabble around and and rebuild something that we broke. We demolished. we are a very powerful nation and we should be proud of that. And we should come together and realize that democracy does triumph over evil and autocracy. And so if we can just realize that and come together on our common terms, look, you know, people can disagree about policy all the time and that's actually healthy in a democracy. Um, But uh, when we start attacking each other and having videos of, uh, you know, uh, actually entering the home of your uh, opponents with uh, guns, like Eric Rittens did in uh, just recently in Missouri uh, with a Senate campaign. Um, yeah, that's that's beyond pale, and it should be called out for that. And and no one should vote for somebody like that. Um, that's that's not democracy. It's you know, having thugs attack another uh, person for their political beliefs is not what democracy is all about. Sure, and in the case that you just cited, Michael, he was a fellow Republican he was attacking as a rhino. And, you know, with armed men storming (laughs) on a hunt for rhinos. I mean, my God, how Well, Raffensperger, who was testifying today, he was being attacked by the election deniers. And they were, um, you know, attacking his wife, uh, making threats against her. Uh, making death threats against him, death threats against his family, his um, you know extended family, his sister, and other things. I mean, and, and this is happening at all levels of government. So this is not just you know the Georgia Secretary of State. It's happening elsewhere. It's why some of these election officials are saying, "I just can't take it anymore." Um, that is unacceptable. That love that sort of violence is unacceptable. So, um, you know, again, I would just appeal to people that. Um, think it through. Uh, It's okay to disagree with somebody because of political differences. It's actually healthy to do that. 
but it's not okay to threaten violence against each other because you um, don't believe in the way in which they um, they think is the right way. Well, Michael McDonald, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Great to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Michael McDonald, who's a professor of political science at the University of Florida. He's a principal investigator on the Public Mapping Project, a project to encourage public participation in redistricting. And he's also the director of the United States Election Project. And his new book out soon is From Pandemic to Insurrection, Voting in the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election. We're going to get a restation break and back examining the 6-3 to three Supreme Court decision to fund religious schools with taxpayer money. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Diane Ravitch, a professor in New York University's Steinhardt School of Education and one of America's best-known education experts. She was appointed to the National Assessment Governing Board by President Bill Clinton and served as Assistant Secretary of Education under George H.W. Bush. Through extensive speaking and writing, she has established a reputation as a conservative champion of school choice, testing standards, No Child Left Behind, and other programs claiming to make schools more efficient and effective. In her book, The Death and Life of the Great American School System, Ravitch explains how she came to make a radical break from these policies. And her most recent book is Reign of Error, The Hoax of the Privatization Movement and the Danger to America's Public Schools. Welcome to Background Briefing, Diane Ravitch. Thank you so much, Ian. Great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Diane. And what do you make of the Supreme Court 6-3 to three decision uh, handed down today that effectively gives taxpayer money to religious schools, treating them like charter schools? Uh, I think it's a terrible decision. It's certainly not a surprise coming from this court. The court uh, has been packed with uh, justices who support religion over every other interest, uh, and they've done this again and again. So I think we'll see more rulings that uh, break down what we used to call the wall of separation between church and state. Uh, it's clear that this court would like to see religious schools receive the same funding as public schools. And um, because my background is that I am a historian, I understand the issues. Uh, I understand that, I mean, the court is right about one thing. There was a lot of anti-Catholic bias in American society in the 19th century, uh, and some of the laws in, in state constitutions reflect that bias. But the the prohibition against funding religious schools was not just about Catholic schools. It was a prohibition against all religious schools. And that meant that public money would not be used to support schools run by any religion, Protestants, Catholic, Jews, Muslims, all religious faiths were uh, supposed to support their own schools. So now the court is moving in a direction where they say, well, if the state, in this case Maine, supports any private schools, which they do because there are some communities don't have a high school and they allow kids to go to private high schools with public money, 
And so the court says, well, if you're going to fund any private high schools, you have to fund religious schools as well. Uh, the pro- I, I think that Maine should abandon that program of funding private high schools and, and simply say public money for public schools and religious schools are not public schools. Uh, it would really be uh, a ridiculous thing to find that pub- taxpayers are paying for schools where their own children could not be admitted for religious reasons. Uh, that would bring up issues of discrimination. Uh, so I think that where they're moving is to... Uh, to fund religious schools equally with public schools. And that, that's a threat to the, the very principle of public education, uh, which is the schools are supported by the public and open to all children. And Diane Ravage, you mentioned the wall of separation, which is Thomas Jefferson's phrase, the separation of church and state. A lot of these justices, if not all of them, are so-called originalists who believe that the text of the Constitution written back in the 1780s is frozen in time. So there's an element of hypocrisy there, isn't there? Well, there certainly is. I mean, they're originalists when it suits them, and they're not originalists when it doesn't suit them. If they were truly originalists, there wouldn't be any women on the Supreme Court, because when the Constitution was written, women didn't have the right to vote. And so I would suggest that uh, originalists like uh, Amy Coney Barrett immediately resign because uh, she, under the original Constitution, would not be eligible. Uh, but the original Constitution was very clear uh, that there would be no establishment of religion, and by that they meant no public funding of religion. I think the basic idea is that we have a secular state, uh, and we don't we don't fund religion because if if religion is important to people, they fund it themselves. Uh, the reason we have public schools is to support uh, the education of young people to become, to be able to vote, to have the literacy to vote, to have the literacy to participate in civic life, uh, to support our democratic values, uh, but not to indoctrinate them in faith. And I think this is a tremendous mistake of the current direction of the Supreme Court. And that is that they're saying that the public should pay for schools where children are literally indoctrinated into a specific faith. Uh, I don't want to see that happen. Uh, Whenever vouchers, religious vouchers, have been up for a vote, they have been defeated overwhelmingly because most Americans don't want to pay for the religious indoctrination of other people's children, not even their own. So I I think it's, it's a very bad decision, and given the nature of the Supreme Court, and the way it's been packed with uh, people who would support views like this. Um, it's, it, I mean, basically, the court has been packed with people who are against abortion and who are in favor of uh, funding religious schools. And uh, they're not originalists. This was, uh, not, none of their views can be found in the original interpretation of the, of the Constitution. Um, and the founders certainly did not believe in funding religious schools under any circumstances. And again, I'm speaking with Diane Ravitch, who's a professor in New York University Steinhardt School of Education and one of America's best-known education experts. She was appointed to the National Assessment Governing Board by President Bill Clinton and served as Assistant Secretary of Education under George H.W. Bush. And she's the author of Reign of Error, the hoax of the privatization movement and the danger to America's public schools. Well, there's one man, effectively, who has stacked the Supreme Court and the federal bench, and his name is Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society, and he is ultra-conservative Catholic Opus Dei 
and that doesn't represent the diversity of American religion, let alone the diversity within the Catholic faith itself. So I find that extraordinary, and it's, it's sort of a subject that's somewhat taboo. But um, well, I, the, you know, I think it's just unfortunate that um, we have a Supreme Court now in which uh, six of its members uh, are, are Catholic, which doesn't seem somehow to reflect American society. Uh, I think there should se- seven, be, isn't it? Well, I think Neil Sotomayor Gorsuch as well. Was, was, yeah, Sotomayor is Catholic. Uh, Neil Gorsuch was raised as a Catholic, but he has uh, since converted it, probably because he married out of the faith. But in any event, the, the court is dominated by people who went to Catholic schools and were raised as Catholics, and it seems a bit overwhelming. I, I, I guess I fundamentally don't think that any religion uh, should dominate the Supreme Court or should uh, author rulings that, that benefit their own religion. I think most Americans would agree with that because the one thing that characterizes this country is we are diverse. We come from all different kinds of religious backgrounds. And we don't want to have a state religion or to have a court dominated by a single religion that imposes their views on everyone. And I think that's what's happening now. Um, And Trump was quite willing to go along with uh, Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society uh, because you can be sure that he never heard of any of the people that he appointed. And it's a kind of a tremendous irony uh, that probably the least qualified and least competent president in our history I got three appointments to the Supreme Court. Well, and that, of course, will uh, live on the consequences. But in terms of the fact that you pointed out that schools run by Protestants, Catholics, Jews, Muslims, and other religious faiths were also ineligible for public funding, but obviously no longer, there is, of course, I think in Catholic schools, I think by and large, the standard of education is pretty high. Whereas in the Protestant, and particularly the fundamentalist uh, schools, which will now be getting public funds, they're the same people quite often that are the book burners, they're they're anti-science. So this will have a terrible impact, will it not, on the dumbing down of American American children? Well, it certainly will. And you could say the same thing about charter schools, because charter schools in general are no better than public schools, even though they're supposed to be. They're not. Uh, And... The people who are in the state legislatures promoting privatization really don't care about education and really don't care about children uh, and really don't care about the future of our country. What they care about is privatization. Uh, there are a number of for-profit organizations in the, in the charter sector, and uh, in, in the religious sector, there are many probably more evangelical schools at this point than there are Catholic schools, and uh Many of these evangelical schools are racist in their teaching, racism, sexism, and ideas that would never be tolerated in a public school. So we're uh, headed, I think, down a very uh, bad path in terms of the future of our country. And given the fact that this Supreme Court will be around for a long time to come, uh, they were chosen not only for their ideology, but also for their age. Um, I think our states need to take action and eliminate eliminate the, what Maine has been doing, which is paying for private school tuition. Uh, and Montana was also paying for private school tuition under certain circumstances. They should use public money for public schools and spend that public money to make public schools the best they can be. 
uh, and rather than diverting it to um, charter schools and voucher schools. Well, over the weekend, the Texas Republican Party had their convention, and quite a lot of what came out of it was was alarming. And some of it had to do with education and schools. Uh, they passed resolutions saying that you had to teach anti-abortion propaganda, uh, fetal heartbeats, all of those things that uh, the the people that harass uh, abortion clinics, uh, those techniques, put them into the curriculum, but also at the same time refuse to teach children critical thinking. And you had this paradox after the horrible massacre at the school in Texas where conservatives and Republicans are arguing that essentially you can trust teachers to carry firearms around children without any training, but you can't trust them to teach what they need to teach children and what they're qualified sure, to well, teach children. I mean, it, it's tremendous hypocrisy that you have these state legislatures like Ohio uh, saying that teachers need only 24 hours of training to, to carry a gun, and teachers don't want to carry guns. They're actually tremendously opposed to the idea that uh, the schools become a, a place for where there are a lot of these dangerous weapons around. But I think this is a Republican response that to when there's a massacre, uh, the one thing they don't want to do is take away guns from dangerous people. The, the tech, I'm glad you mentioned the Texas Republican Convention. It was a horror show because they 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 want to put on the ballot um, a motion to secede from the United States. And I, I was born in Texas, and I have to say, I'm sorry to see them go, but at the same time, their their ideology is so uh, lethal. Uh, they're, they're, they despise any form of gun control. They think that there should be no red flag laws. To, they don't want to keep guns out of the hands of terrorists or criminals or dangerous people. They don't want to have any background checks. They just think everyone should be armed and uh, settle your disputes by shooting it out. Uh, and then, too, they have, as you said, um, they want schools to be required to teach anti-abortion propaganda. Um, and so they want to arm teachers and at the same time say they're so dangerous, they might teach our children the, the uh, actual history about racism in the United States. They might teach them science about evolution. So we can't trust them to teach what they know to be true but we can trust them to carry a gun. So it's uh, sometimes I think that the country is um, going over the edge. And Texas, the Texas GOP is certainly, at this point, um, an extremist organization. And I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that the voters wake up and um, throw these rascals out because they, they represent the absolute depths of ignorance and stupidity. Well, the American people did throw the rascals out, uh, particularly the the main rascal, or the criminal, in fact, uh, Donald Trump. But, but he has come up with this lie that's metastasized. Um, he refused to accept defeat, conducted a coup in order to stay in power. But his lie has become bedrock Republican dogma now and belief that, yes. in fact, they passed that resolution at the Texas Republican Party that... The Biden is the illegitimate president. So it's almost as if at least Betsy DeVos from the Trump era is living on in this Supreme Court decision, is she not? Yes, indeed. This must be a very good day for Betsy DeVos. And 
uh, for all of those people who hate anything that belongs to the public. And it's a dangerous moment for our society when we see the advocates of privatization and the advocates of religious ideology uh, winning over uh, what I would consider traditional American values of separation of church and state, uh, respect for uh, the public goods, and what we're seeing instead is a, a raid on the public goods. And the very, I mean, Trump is, is, I would say that he was a joke, except that the Republican Party continues to defer to him and uh, his followers who spout the big lie um, continue to be elected in state after state, which is really awful because I've been watching the, the January 6th hearings uh very closely. I mean, to me, they're a fascinating drama, but they're true. And every single person who has testified is a Republican, and they've testified about the lies that Trump tells. I mean, um, if if it's going to become Republican dogma now that the vice president has the right to overturn the election, I wonder if they will give the same deference to Kamala Harris. And in, in 2024, it will be up to Kamala Harris to decide who the real winner of the election is. In which case, uh, you know, we can expect that the Democrats can claim they won because she can throw out all of the state votes uh, that that she doesn't like. But, of course, I think that Kamala Harris uh, will abide by the rule of law and the Constitution as Donald Trump and his party will not. Uh, It's just, I think, a very dangerous time for our country. And this Supreme Court ruling today is, is just one more evidence of the dangerous time we're in uh, when the Supreme Court fundamentally reverses about 150 years of precedent uh, that says we didn't, that the public should not fund religious schools, period. So just in closing, without being conspiratorial or too cynical, uh, Diane, Donald Trump, when he was campaigning in 2016 in one of his rallies, said, I love the poorly educated. Is there something to that idea that plutocrats like the Koch brothers or Charles Koch now don't particularly want an educated public with critical thinking? Now, of course, you know, what, 40% of the country is immersed in in right-wing propaganda. Most evangelical churches and particularly uh, Christian radio are, in effect, a front for right-wing politics. So there is seems to be a certain correlation there, that if you ban books and won't let teachers teach anything about our real history, etc., you are essentially dumbing down uh, generations uh, who will be obedient, uh, if not low-information voters. I think, uh, you know, Ian, I hate to say it, but I believe this is a fact, uh, that when people advocate for vouchers, for schools that are not equal to the public schools, uh, when they advocate uh, for censorship, when they advocate against teaching the true history of our country, when they advocate against teaching science as is taught in higher education, uh, then they're advocating for dumbing down the population. And it seems like uh, they've done a pretty good job of it. Um, And I think the only response has to be to fight harder than ever against the forces of ignorance and stupidity, uh, and and also to recognize that this is not simply um, an accident that this is happening. Uh, This is funded by very, very wealthy people who see a great advantage to themselves 
in electing a party who, who thinks that the solution to every problem is to cut taxes on the rich. Well, Diane Ravitch, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And again, I've been speaking with Diane Ravitch, who's a professor in New York University Steinhardt School of Education and one of America's best-known education experts. She was appointed to the National Assessment Governing Board by President Bill Clinton and served as Assistant Secretary of Education under George H.W. Bush. She is the author of Reign of Error, The Hoax of the Privatization Movement and the Danger to America's Public Schools. We're going to take a restation break. We're back and go to Colombia to examine the results of Sunday's elections that brought a former guerrilla, Gustavo Petro, to the presidency, along with the vice president, Francia Marquez, an Afro-Colombian environmentalist who was once a domestic servant who cleaned houses. And just a note that we had to do the interview via Zoom, and my audio is not optimum, but it's certainly acceptable. Catholic school as vicious as Roman rule I got my knuckles bruised by a lady in black and I held my tongue as she told me son fear is the heart of love so I never went back and if heaven and hell decide Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from Colombia is Forrest Hilton, who is a professor of political science at the Universidad Nacional de Colombia. Hilton is the author of The Evil Hour in Colombia and a frequent contributor to the London Review of Books, where he just wrote the article Fiesta Democratica. Welcome to Background Briefing, Forrest Hilton. Many thanks uh, for inviting me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And do you still have a hangover from the weekend? Uh, indeed. Uh, you know, as as the years go by, the hangovers last longer, don't they? <laughs> Tell us about the fiesta over the weekend. So, um, you know, the, the polling stopped about a week before elections. And, you know, polls, of course, are notoriously unreliable anyway but it was very hard to tell from the polls who was gonna come out on top. And, um, you know, it, it looked as though the center right and the far right might really converge in order to prevent somebody from the left coming to office because no one from the left has ever come to office before in Colombia. And that's because uh, different factions of the elite have worked overtime for more than 150 years to make sure that that didn't happen. Um, so really it was the lack of unity on the right in part, and then a really dramatic effort to get out the vote between the first round and the second round, as well as to convince undecided voters that, uh, it was worth trying something new, uh, for a change since, as I mentioned, nothing like this has been tried since Colombia came into being as a, as a nation state, um, some 200 years ago. And it's a it's a really interesting ticket, isn't it? Gustavo Petro and his vice president Francia Marquez. I mean, the fact that he was at what at the age of seventeen he became a member of the M nineteen guerrilla movement, and then was captured, tortured, eventually made his way to become a congressman and a senator and the mayor of Bogota, and then his vice president Francia Marquez is an Afro Colombian. She was a 
domestic worker cleaning houses at some point in her life, but she brings a strong ecological credentials to the ticket, does she not? Absolutely, and also a really direct connection to grassroots organizing and social movements in Colombia. Um, Petro is certainly close to those movements in terms of his sympathies, but because he has been uh, in uh, official politics in, um, in Congress and the Senate for so long, uh, as well as, uh, you know, being mayor of Bogota, um, you know, he doesn't, he has not had the same connection. Um, and many of these movements uh, have significant youth components. If, you know, you might even say that they have been youth dominated to some degree. And therefore that connection to a new generation of activists and, um, and grassroots organizing is very important because there are a lot of young people who see Gustavo Petro as essentially um, kind of the, the, the outer limit of what's acceptable in Colombian politics. And they're really trying to seek deeper uh, historical change. And I think they see uh, Francia Marquez as somebody who's, uh, who's very much in touch with those kinds of currents. And she really emerged as a figure in 2021 when a national popular uprising swept through the cities and across the countryside all over Colombia, rejecting the neoliberal model that um, has been in place roughly since the early 1990s and, and demanding a, a, a change of course. And for Petro, as well as Marquez, the, the question of climate change and the transition to a greener economy is crucial because all of Colombia's major economic activities involving uh, gold mining, oil and petroleum, uh, gas extraction, and, um, you know, certainly cocaine exports, uh, as well as, you know, things like biofuels. These are all incredibly destructive to the environment um, throughout Colombia. So, you know, any green government is going to have to think about um, a new economic model to move away from dependence on petroleum and gas and, um, and large-scale mining uh, in coal as well as gold. Um, so it seems that Petro and Marquez are really the, the perfect duo to, to begin a shift uh, in a greener direction for Colombia. And again, I'm speaking with Forrest Hilton, who is in Colombia, where he's a professor of political science at the Universidad Nacional de Colombia. He is the author of Evil Hour in Colombia and a frequent contributor to the London Review of Books, where he just wrote the article, Fiesta Democratica. Well, you mentioned the national uprising against Uribe, I guess, and his, his successor, his kind of a clone. That was largely youth-led, was it not? It, it absolutely was. And it was youth-led by people who don't see themselves reflected in the existing political system uh, at all. Uh, people who are really in many ways outside uh, of the existing order and, and demanding to be included and demanding that the rights that, that are supposedly guaranteed by the constitution actually be guaranteed by the government. So in many ways, Petro has been elected to try to bring his country's reality in line with the constitution that he and his uh, comrades helped to draft in 1991, which is to say a, a kind of progressive blueprint for where the country ought to go. But instead, uh, in light of kind of US-driven anti-drug policy, 
but also kind of the the anti-communist counterinsurgency struggles against the FARC guerrillas. Um, you know, they pushed the country in the exact opposite direction and um, led to enormous amounts of ecological and human devastation as as the war really ratcheted up in Colombia in the first decade of the the 21st century uh, under Plan Colombia, which was um, a U.S. sponsored initiative designed to reduce drug production, and almost the entirety of that uh, initiative went to the Colombian armed forces and the police. Something like 82% went to the armed forces and the police, um, and that did nothing actually to stem the flow of uh, cocaine exports to the United States and Europe, but it did do a great deal uh, in terms of weakening uh, the FARC guerrillas and devastating the populations and the landscapes in the territories that the guerrillas had long controlled. But in terms of ending the decades, if not centuries long, rule of the oligarchs, the ruling families in Colombia, and Rodolfo Hernandez, who ran against uh, Petro, I don't know how much he represents the oligarchy, but it would seem to be that, is this a, a sea change in terms of of what's happening in the country, that it's literally becoming more of a democracy? Well, I think there's there's a, a slight majority that is trying to push the country in that direction, but there's something of a deadlock. And so it remains to be seen how Petro is gonna get his um, initiatives, particularly concerning social reform through Colombian Congress. What kind of alliances is he gonna have to make in order to, to get anything done? Um, that's kind of an open question because even though he won the election, it, the, the, the margin was, was not wide enough to, to speak of a landslide. Um, you know, it was reasonably close. And then in both the Congress and the Senate, um, the Petro's coalition did quite well, but is very far from anything like a majority. So um, there's, you know, of necessity going to have to be a lot of compromise and, you know, probably horse trading and favors um, going back and forth uh, to be able to govern. So um, it's not clear how much of the kind of grassroots agenda from 2021 Petro's government is going to be able to implement, um, but he has pledged to try, and that in itself is a significant departure. And and I guess that's that's what I would say ultimately is that just the effort to govern uh, in favor of and in dialogue with uh, the country's social movements and, and the majority of, popula of the population, which is in many ways excluded from the current political economic model, is itself a very significant departure. And it's never been done before in Colombia. And um, I think it's safe to say that the oligarchy in Colombia is going to do everything in its power and then and then some to make the country ungovernable. But uh, there will also be people getting in line to cut deals with the new government to see what kind of terms that they can get for themselves. And I'm, I'm speaking about specific firms and specific economic sectors that have plenty to gain from negotiating favorable terms with a government that's ultimately gonna be more pragmatic than, than it is kind of idealistic. I don't think Gustavo Petro has any uh, illusions about the need for um, considerable compromise 
um, and the need to build broad consensus for anything that he's going to try to accomplish because he knows very well um, that, you know, conspiring to get him out of power uh, probably began even before he had won the elections and it's certainly going to continue. So uh, in that respect, I think his relations with the United States are going to be very important. And um, uh, I, I suppose we'll see how they develop in terms of both renegotiating anti-drug policy, but also renegotiating certain aspects of uh, the free trade deals that the two countries have signed. Because uh, Petro's looking to protect small-scale agricultural producers as well as small-scale kind of artisanal miners, um, and that is going to require a certain amount of fine-tuning of these free trade agreements, which obviously um, do not favor petty producers uh, who can't compete with, with imports or large multinational firms, um, which are currently favored or have been favored by all previous governments. So, um, you know, it's gonna be a, a very difficult road, I think, to get even the most basic uh, kind of minimum reforms passed. Um, but we'll see what kind of consensus building proves to be possible. And apparently uh, Petro is trying to get these small farmers to uh, change crops from cocoa, the source of cocaine, to other crops. So the country has been beset by major problems, not least of which is a large-scale guerrilla war with the FARC. And then on top of that, you have the, the narco kingpins causing havoc and brutality. And then, and then more recently, you've had this massive influx of refugees from Venezuela. So uh, he's got quite a lot on his plate, does he not? him and his vice president. Indeed, and, and I believe that President Maduro from Venezuela has already reached out to Petro to begin normalizing relations between the two countries. And the remaining guerrilla group, the National Liberation Army or ELN um, in its Spanish acronym has also um, sent signs that it is eager uh, to negotiate a peace deal with the Petro government. So it might be possible um, to, to fix the situation uh, along the, the Venezuelan-Colombian border where so much uh, movement of guns and drugs and um, guerrilla insurgents take place. Um, so I think that considerable um, moves toward greater South American and Latin American um, economic and political integration uh, are certainly going to be in the works um, because that's going to be one of the ways that Petro uh, is able to negotiate with the United States um, by participating in kind of um, broader regional initiatives and proposals uh, around things like anti-drug strategy or free trade. But in terms of the hosting all of these refugees, that's got to be a drain on the country that's trying to build, trying to lift up its own population, right? Well, to a certain degree, but as you might imagine, employers in Colombia like the situation quite a bit because it allows them to undercut Colombian wages. Um, so, it, it, and to be, to, to its credit, uh, I would say that, you know, Colombian, the Colombian people have been, um, for the most part, quite welcoming of, uh, of Venezuelan refugees and quite understanding because there was a period where I believe three, something like three or four million Colombians, perhaps even more, 
uh, migrated to Venezuela during the 1970s. Um, so in terms of solving the refugee crisis, um, one of the first things to do would be to normalize relations with, with Venezuela, certainly. Um, so I would see any steps towards kind of conversations with Maduro as a step in the direction of trying to deal with the refugee crisis. So just in closing, what's your read on how Washington is handling this former guerrilla now leader of Colombia? Well, he spoke with uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken yesterday, I guess, mostly about the importance of uh, investing in peace, and that means investing in uh, the countryside in Colombia, as well as uh, climate change and the transition to a green economy. So clearly he's, he's looking for common ground with the United States uh, rather than conflict. And I think that the United States perhaps has its hands full in Europe right now um, to, the, to the point where uh, the U.S. appetite for overthrowing a government like uh, Gustavo Petro's uh, might be considerably less than than it has been uh, throughout, you know, most of uh, certainly the second half of the 20th century and, and a good part of the 21st. Well, Forrest Hilton, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, many thanks for the uh, invitation to uh, discuss these issues with your listeners. And again, I've been speaking with Forrest Hilton, who is in Colombia, where he's a professor of political science at the Universidad Nacional de Colombia. He is uh, the author of Evil Hour in Colombia and a frequent contributor to the London Review of Books, where he just wrote the article, Fiesta Democratica. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.